Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 14th, 2018. I want to remind listeners to go to econtalk.org, and in the upper left-hand corner, you'll find a link to your, our annual survey, where you can vote for your favorite episodes of the year and tell us about yourself and your listening experience. And now for today's guest, Patrick Collison, co-founder and CEO of Stripe. Patrick, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, long time, long time fan of the show. It's lovely. Uh, our topic for today is innovation, uh, based on an article you wrote uh, in the Atlantic with uh, Michael Nielsen. And we're going to get to that in a second, but I want to start with uh, what Stripe is for listeners who don't know. Sure. Uh, so uh, uh, Stripe is a, an a infrastructure company that builds, uh, we, well, we started out building kind of payment services for internet businesses, technology companies. And so if they want to sell their products to a global audience over the internet, we build the APIs and tools for them to do that. Uh, and we've kind of expanded from kind of these uh, initial payment services to now provide a kind of uh, a slightly broader set of, um, you know, uh, economic or kind of financial tools and services to businesses. And so, for example, we help them with maybe fraud detection or we help them run a marketplace, you know, something like, uh, you know, Lyft or Airbnb, those kinds of products. Uh, and uh, we we provide an incorporation service uh, so that uh, for founders and especially founders uh, not in the U.S. who uh, for whom sort of getting access to the kinds of opportunities that we have here might be more difficult, uh, we also help them do that. And so we kind of describe Stripe as building economic infrastructure for the internet and the kind of the the, the core ideas we want to sort of um, want to make the flow of money uh, and the sort of um, the uh, ability to transact kind of a truly universal. Uh, we think there is a kind of missing layer of internet infrastructure that sort of c- c- kind of surprisingly uh, uh, has not been built um, over the, the course of the internet's history to date. And why wasn't PayPal and other solutions like that um, that solution? Well, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think it's a very interesting question. Uh, and we certainly wondered a lot about that when we were starting Stripe. Um, and I think the I think in many ways PayPal kind of had the um, the right aspiration. I mean, if you kind of read comp- contemporaneous materials from kind of when they started, you know, their, their vision was slightly different. It was more about sort of consumers, more about building a new kind of maybe online bank uh, and so on. So the focus was a bit different. But I do think they had the right kind of central idea that again, there's kind of a missing layer of infrastructure. Um, and I think really the thing that um, uh, kind of stymied them was was their acquisition by eBay. Uh, there, was, there was sort of a, an outflux of talent really immediately, um, and uh, and I think the, you know, the sort of accomplishments of the company in the subsequent five years, the subsequent ten years, you know, just really did not compare at all uh, to that which they'd accomplished so far. Um, and, and you know, of course, that's that's a pretty common story, right? I mean, that that that's not, I think, something kind of specific, perhaps, to the uh, PayPal eBay case. Uh, that's um, that's you know potentially the common pattern. And I I have to ask this just to let listeners know what we're talking about. 
Uh, Stripe's done pretty well. Um, we well, we, we feel very lucky in terms of the uh, adoption we've had, and that you know, John and I, John's my brother and co-founder. Um, we, you know, we were developers ourselves, uh, and when we started Stripe, uh, we were in college, um, and we went to build Stripe uh, for people kind of like us in the sense that, you know, as developers, we were just kind of mystified that it was so difficult to move money around online, uh, especially since so many other things like cloud hosting and so on were becoming so straightforward um, and so uh, and so easy to manage from a developer standpoint. And so we built, built what we felt was a kind of oddly missing component of sort of the building blocks of the internet. Um, but the thing that we did not anticipate, uh, and again, we've been sort of very fortunate around is uh, while Stripe was indeed adopted by kind of people like quote unquote like us, uh, you know, individual developers, very early stage startups, and so on, and kind of that was really um, uh, where our initial adoption came from. Um, the kind of breadth has really expanded over the kind of seven years since we launched, and so you know, Stripe is now used by um, uh, by many such startups, but also by you know some of the largest companies in the world, uh, you know, including. Facebook and Amazon. Uh, and so we did not expect that breadth of adoption. And I think it honestly just speaks to the, again, <laughs> the extent to which there was a layer of stuff that's really needed that just was not being built. So the idea for this episode came from a piece we'll link to, um, as I mentioned, The Atlantic. And the focus of the piece is that science isn't progressing at a particularly fast rate. Innovation is seems to be slowing down, and it's um, perhaps something to be concerned about. And you start with an argument that I, I'd like to talk about first, which, of course, is very close to my heart, which is measuring this is quite difficult. It's very hard to know whether science is, is doing great, speeding up, slowing down. Uh, different people in different corners of a field, different fields – are holding different parts of the elephant. They don't know what else is going on outside their field, and they might have a perception that's very uh, field-centric or personal uh, from their own perspective. How do we even begin to get at this question, and how did you end up uh, with Michael Nielsen trying to get at this question? Well, um, I guess I'd just clarify one thing about the argument uh, to start, which is we don't really take a stance on whether the rate of progress in science is slowing down per se. Um, uh, we're, we're, you know, we, we kind of see arguments either way there, but uh, we're, we're, we're somewhat agnostic on it. Um, what we are much more confident of, and I think uh, the sort of um, the hypothesis that the data very strongly supports, um, is that uh, the rate of progress is declining very rapidly. Uh, on a per person, a per hour, or on a per dollar basis, right? And so perhaps because of the enormous increase uh, in our investment, in our efforts, you know, perhaps we're in fact still sustaining, you know, constant or, you know, approximately similar overall aggregate progress, uh, but again, on a sort of on, a, on an individual basis uh, that uh, our, our kind of per hour per person productivity uh, seems much, much lower. Um, in terms of kind of how, how we got to thinking about measuring it, um, I guess it always seemed a bit strange to me that, um, uh, that we just don't collectively obsess over this question more, right? Uh, I mean, with Stripe, we think a lot about sort of rates of growth. We describe Stripe's mission as uh, in trying to increase the GDP of the internet. And, you know, that's obviously a, a, a kind of, um, you know, trite phrasing. But the sort of core idea is we do want to sort of take a broad view of the internet economy, of technological progress, how many companies get started, how 
well they fare and so on, and try to figure out what are kind of really broad-based measures and kind of um, interventions uh, that, that sort of can help create that might nudge um, uh, that, that, that rate of growth, you know, in a, in a, uh, to be somewhat higher. Um, but of course, technology, uh, and especially kind of, um, you know, software technology and so on, that, that, that's a kind of application, right? We're, we're, we're sort of in the, the translation field of sort of taking the results of science and kind of fundamental knowledge and discovery and sort of deploying them uh, to, to, to the rest of the world. When we think about the sort of, you know, aggregate um, you know, progress of humanity, uh, there, there's that, you know, really important uh, applied aspect, but there is also obviously the kind of uh, the, 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 the fundamental underpinnings uh, of our, um, our understanding of nature um, and uh, 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 basic knowledge, you know, uh, uh, research where there is not a particular destination in mind, we might be really surprised by what it is that you discover. <laughs> And I think it just as we think as people, as we think uh, as a civilization, you know, what's the world going to look like in a hundred years, in a thousand years, right? I think, you know, arguably the single most important uh, input uh, into sort of that prediction uh, is what is the aggregate rate of progress in science going to be between now and then, right? You know, maybe some tail really bad things are going to happen, but if they don't happen, I think that the single biggest determinant will be the aggregate rate of progress uh, in science. Uh, and so I think the kind of first order thing that should surprise us is that this is not something that we're collectively obsessed with, right? Uh, leave aside questions as to kind of what the you know actual rate is. <laughs> we I think we should all be able to agree that the rate is super important um, and that we should really care a lot about it. Um, and uh, and so we kind of initially came to this in terms of just wondering about the rate itself and then kind of as we thought more about it and how one might measure it and what kind of other correlates might be and so forth, then we really uh, became pretty convinced uh, of, the, again, the case made in the article that the, the rate per person uh, is, uh, is declining very sharply. And the reason, of course, that should be concerning, even if the aggregate rate today is, you know, constant-ish, is that, of course, we cannot sustain, uh, you know, uh, these, uh, uh, you know, I say exponentially in a qualitative sense, not in a sort of rigorous quantitative sense, but we cannot sustain these qualitatively um, uh, exponentially uh, increasing inputs uh, indefinitely. I interviewed Tyler Cowen uh, earlier uh, on the program a number of times, but about his recent work on growth and the book he has now called Stubborn Attachments is a very yes. provocative and interesting book. And I'm Published very, by Stripe Press. Oh, I did not know that. That is so cool. Um uh, I was much I, – well, first, I found his case very uh, persuasive in the abstract, mm -hmm. and I certainly is, had been would have been my view uh, five years ago. Lately, as listeners know, I've become a little bit more skeptical about the value of growth and the value of the advance of technology. I mean, if we look back to 1900 and we looked at today, if we'd been in 1900 and say, well, you, you raised the question, what's the world going to look like in 100 years? It's a really good question. Uh, 1900, we would have been uh, rather clueless about it, and we certainly, if we could go back to 1900, bring that person to the present and say, how's this look to you? Uh, there would be many, many things that that person would be ex wildly exuberant about. Uh, those things would include uh, longer life expectancy, fewer women dying in childbirth, uh, huge reductions in infant mortality, much more pleasant daily life. So there are a lot of glorious things that have happened. And if that person had been uh, black or a woman or gay, there'd be other things to be very happy about as well, social things. 
And I think those I've started to wor- wonder and, and worry a little bit about whether we underrate those social things. So I have to mention some good things that have happened since 1900. There have been some not so good things that have happened since 1900 in, in daily life. People worry as I recently discussed uh, with Sebastian Younger, and this episode hasn't aired yet, Patrick, so you haven't heard it, but um, we're, we seem to be quite a bit more isolated. We seem a little bit more lonely. Uh, there's some dysfunctionality about our society. And science and technology, I don't think, solve those problems, and they might even make them worse. So what are your thoughts on that? When you think, when you said we ought to be obsessed about it, it maybe there are other things we ought to be more obsessed about and – we pick science because we have some idea of how it happens. Um, you know, I, I, I'm certainly sympathetic to aspects of that view. Uh, uh, economic or scientific growth uh, are certainly not everything. Um, but I really want to stand up for growth here. Um, uh, I think it. it's um, uh, the, the, the caveats are, uh, I, th- I think, do not diminish its central importance. And so if you just look at a GDP per capita around the world and do the scatter plot of that against um, uh, self-reported well-being, um, the R squared on that linear regression is 0.68. It's astonishing. Like, you know, it, as you know, it's very rare uh, in sort of anything around um, sort of human psychology and sociology and so on, did you get a correlation that's that strong? Uh, and you, you just you look at it visually; um, it's uh, it's really pretty amazing. Um, and even on the again, I, I don't want to sound like um, uh, sort of an absolutist here. There certainly are um, some things that have gotten uh, worse about the world since, for example, 1900. But even if you take, for example, the um, the, the case of sort of isolation and loneliness, while yes, I think there are. Um, Aspects to our communities that have uh, that have degraded, or where they've been kind of unintended and unfortunate, kind of um, uh, you know, second order consequences, be it around you know, the automobile or single family zoning and all the rest. At the same time, there does seem to be some aspect where um, isolation is a kind of consumption good that people tend to purchase as they become more affluent. And so, it's not entirely clear to me or to me whether all of that sort of observed isolation uh, is in fact. Um, uh, uh, is in fact undesirable in, in terms of people's kind of underlying revealed preferences. And so again, not an absolutist here, but I do think the kind of central case for growth remains extremely strong. Yeah, you know, I'm sympathetic to that also, of course. I, I just wonder, I, I think there's an issue of focus. And um, I, I think it's much easier to focus on um, technological change and the things we can count, like GDP, it's ironic a little bit because we're talking about something that's hard to count, knowledge. Um, eventually, yes. that knowledge gets translated, we hope, into innovation and that we hope that knowledge, that innovation translates into uh, a better experience uh, for human beings. But it, it, it does get complicated at each piece of that chain. But let's move to let's move to the evidence. So on the surface, you know, how, how would you know? As you point out, we're not obsessed with it, so I don't. There's no index that most people would agree is the right way to think about it. What are some different mm-hmm. ways that that you and um, and Michael Nelson looked at it, and 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 that others have done? Right. So um, I think there are maybe um, four or so uh, kind of key ways you can try to uh, at least the, the kind of we've seen so far um, that you can try to take a look at this question. Um, and uh, you know, obviously. You know, we are and, and uh, would be kind of super interested to to, um, to read or to study kind of any other analyses uh, this question. Um, 
So I think the most obvious one is actually to just look at, uh, at sort of the you know macroeconomic statistics, um, and in particular, I think you know for for sort of obvious reasons, uh, uh, TFP um, uh, kind of productivity growth uh, is the uh, is sort of the the most relevant um, uh, variable here. Where if science is working super well. Um, if we're discovering uh, tons of new knowledge, things that have enabled us to uh, produce economic output, economic value more efficiently, you know, we should really see that uh, in the TFP statistics. And you know, perhaps total not every single productivity. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and so, perhaps not every single kind of discovery manifests here, but sort of overall, over time, uh, it really should be visible. Uh, and of course, you know, as as not only. Well, as, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, uh, the kind of the story of total factor productivity growth uh, in the U.S. Uh, over the course of the last, call it, you know, 150 years, is one of uh, sort of lowish growth, and then sort of you know a, a, a real growth spurt over the course of the kind of the middle of the 20th century. Um, it's been at sort of much uh, lower levels since you know perhaps 1970 or so, a slight kind of uh, peak um, uh, around uh, you know 2000, uh, hypothesized to be because of the sort of quote unquote ICT revolution, uh, and now back to again uh, quite uh, historically low levels, at least again uh, uh, if we take our you know window as being the last 150 years. And so, I mean, that is, uh, you know, that chart, that picture is very consistent with one where sort of mid-century science, um, uh, you know, worked really well. We discovered a lot of amazing things, um, uh, but somehow the, the, the rate of discovery seems to be uh, lower since then. So that's one way of looking at the question. Another way of looking at the question um, is to uh, try to do that kind of TFP calculation, but within fields, within specific domains. Because, you know, you might say, well, the economy is so big and there's so many other things going on and there's so many confounders and all the rest. It's really hard to conclude a whole lot when you look at something as kind of coarse as the you know, total economy of the U.S., so, you know, perhaps you could look, you could choose some sort of specific domains. Maybe you could choose drug discovery, or maybe you could choose crop production techniques, or maybe you could choose semiconductor production, right? And within any of those fields, you can try to choose some kind of more specific granular output measures uh, in that, you know, maybe it's drug discovery, maybe it's um, it, it's semiconductor density, maybe it's um, a sort of uh, a, you know, volume of wheat production and so on. And if you do that, and this in particular was done by uh, a really uh, fantastic paper um, from um, um, uh, Michael Webb, uh, uh, Nick Bloom, uh, Chad Jones, um, uh, at Charles Stanford. Jones and John Van Rienen, and it's the the paper's called "Are Ideas Getting Harder to Find?" and we'll link to that. Yeah, our idea is getting hard to find, and I, I really do encourage any of your listeners to. Um, uh, are interested in this to, to to go read it. It's a very kind of readable paper, um, and the kind of central conclusion is that um, uh, not only do they find that kind of per person or per dollar productivity is declining within these specific fields and industries, um, but uh, uh, they they find that it is in fact declining exponentially, um, and at you know at surprisingly kind of consistent rates, um, uh, in a way that you know really should be um, I think. Uh, at the very least, thought-provoking for us, uh, and I think, uh, you know, moreover, sort of quite concerning. Um, and, you know, since their paper came out, I think the, the first preprint was probably about two years ago or so, um, uh, perhaps even a bit more, um, there's been no strong refutation uh, that I've seen. And, and so kind of this picture of, again, exponentially declining productivity growth across a sort of quite broad broad variety of industries um, uh, is um, uh, is is definitely you know striking. And just Third to interrupt you, one sec, hold, yeah, hold yeah, that thought. Perfect. I just want to, for listeners who are puzzled by that, the the point is that you say declining productivity. It's because innovation is continuing, 
we're, we're improving our knowledge of various things. And it's a great example in in that paper about uh, Moore's Law. So we're, we have a lot more capacity on our chips. The problem is – our computer chips. The problem is is that t- it takes an enormously larger number of workers and researchers and scholars to produce that improvement. And so the right. per-scholar rate is what's going down, not the overall level of innovation, say, in certain fields – and and the question then is why? We'll, we'll come back to that. So continue on. So that's two types of evidence. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, third one you could go look at is uh, kind of um, I don't, sort of um, micro data within sort of uh, um, the, the 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 shape of the production uh, of scientific knowledge. Um, and so you know, for example, um, uh, Ben Jones and and Bruce Weinberg uh, have done some kind of neat analysis of just the, the, the profiles of Nobel Prize winners. Uh, and particularly, they observed that um, uh, over, the, uh, uh, over the, sort of the course of the Nobel Prize, in the early days, the uh, average age of a scientist who won uh, was about 37 years old, um, uh, whereas you know, today, across essentially all fields, all Nobel Prizes, that has grown by 10 years uh, to about 47 um, and again, this is kind of thought-provoking, right? Um, uh, in that, I mean, you know, you, you can of course imagine um, explanations that have sort of nothing to do with uh, sort of rates of progress and so on, uh, like you know maybe kind of something has changed with the kind of structure of academic institutions or something. Um, but it, you know, it is of course also very consistent uh, with a picture of it. It is just getting harder to discover things. It's taking longer. It takes more time to get to the frontier of knowledge. You have to sort of uh, accumulate more comprehension and understanding of, you know, more different fields. And so I think that kind of data is thought-provoking. In a similar vein, um, the um, uh, sort of uh, the size of scientific teams, uh, the sort of extent of kind of co-authorship and the number of authors and publications and so on, you know, that's also sort of uh, uh, really growing very substantially. And again, it's kind of consistent with this picture where, you know, just it takes bigger groups, more work, um, uh, larger teams uh, to, to, to create, you know, this new knowledge and these breakthroughs. So I, I'd say that's kind of a third category, these kind of um, analyses of sort of the, 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 the structure of knowledge production in science. Um, and then the last one, um, and uh, the... Um, as far as we're aware, at least, kind of new one that uh, uh, Michael and I uh, uh, sort of introduced in this article um, is to try to come up with um, some kind of aggregate measure um, of the sort of uh, significance of uh, scientific breakthroughs, uh, because you know that is in some sense the relevant output measure here. Are we discussing kind of are, are we discovering uh, important new knowledge? Um, and so what we decided to do was we took um, sort of pairwise comparisons of different Nobel Prize winning discoveries, and we asked scientists uh, to kind of um, uh, in these uh, in, in, in these comparisons to choose that which they considered more significant, and then to use sort of all those kind of um, uh, partial orderings uh, to produce kind of total scores for different Nobel Prizes. And then we can kind of bucket a little bit and just look at, you know, um, uh, for those scores of, you know, individual prizes, we can maybe generalize to a decade and so on and get some kind of trend line for the kind of, you know, generally perceived significance for Nobel Prize winning work that's occurred. Now, that, of course, is very subjective um, in very obvious ways. uh, And and, and therefore, I think, you know, quite imperfect. Um, but you know, I, th- I think it's not um, 
uh, we, we should we should not totally dismiss it uh, in the sense that I think it's hard to dismiss this methodology without also <laughs> dismissing the Nobel Prize itself, because you know the whole conceit of, of a Nobel is that you can assess a very broad uh, uh, array of work and you can sort of choose that which is um, most significant, most you know, prize worthy, uh, and so if you can do it, kind of. In order to issue a single prize, I think you should also be able to do it sort of across Nobel Prizes. Um, and uh, and anyway, when you kind of construct that data set, um, and we did it uh, for, for three Nobel Prizes, physics, um, um, uh, medicine, and, uh, uh, and chemistry, uh, what you see is that physics kind of has this... Um, uh, this picture that kind of accords in some way with uh, th- that of TFP in the U.S., where kind of you know really did well in kind of uh, early and middle parts of 20th century, has really kind of um, uh, declined somewhat since then. Though the error bars are uh, are relatively wide, um, and then uh, chemistry and uh, and you know uh, medicine slash physiology, uh, it's uh, it's kind of high variance, but you know it, it looks relatively flat. And so anyway, I think uh, this this is quite you know, again, thought-provoking and striking because when you look at the number of researchers or the number of papers or the, you know, you calculate sort of the number of hours invested in these fields, these are growing enormously. Like it, it, it's, uh, it, you know, hmm. it's really worth kind of looking at these charts to see yeah. just how much, right? And so if you kind of have, you know, 50x, say, more researchers in one of these fields, but as judged by scientists themselves, we're producing significant discoveries um, at a nearly constant rate. Uh, you know, on some level, on some just very naive level, that does suggest that, for example, researchers, um, like an individual researcher, is is becoming kind of 50x less likely uh, to produce, um, you know, this, uh, uh, this this kind of really significant work. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, that, that, that I would say is the fourth um, uh, category. And it, it uh, you know, looking across the board, I don't think that any one of these um, sort of, um, I don't think any one category is itself knocked down. You know, any of these ways of looking at the question, you know, has its sort of limitations and flaws. Um, uh, and, I, I, you know, I, I have no enormous confidence in any of them. But I don't see a reason as, the, as to why they should all be biased in the same direction, right? Um, in that if, if this... Um, you know, if this hypothesis that the kind of productivity of science is not declining, that hypothesis is not true. I think you know we'd expect to see some kind of some contradictory data uh, when we when we look at different kinds of analyses. Um, whereas we kind of see all of um, uh, these analyses pointing in the same direction, and so it's when you take all of them together and they're all sort of um, pointing the same way that I think uh, is something we should really take seriously. Uh, I don't disagree, but I, I'm not quite as convinced to sure that something obviously is happening. Uh, that we understand, uh, and I know you don't pretend to understand it thoroughly either, but I just think a silly counterexample, uh, published work in, in the sciences has increased dramatically. I, I'm, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I could be wrong about that, but I'm guessing. And we you, know, you, you mean just the, the amount of published work? Yeah, the number of articles. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right. No, and, it, and, it's, it's, and we know that, enormously. And that's not, that doesn't tell us anything particularly, except that there are more journals and, and that we know why there are more journals. It's because there's an enormous return to publishing an article. So academics have innovated to increase the supply of that precious thing in response to those incentives. And I think, you know, for and the same is true about collaborative work. I don't know how much more collaborative work re- is really, how much more uh, collaborative work is, because there's a big incentive to help people get more publications. 
Uh, of course, you water down your own credit to some extent, but maybe not. I don't know. But all these things, and I, I just to pick on you for a second, Patrick, I, you know, the happiness data, may, maybe people in rich countries think they're supposed to be happier, and so their self-reported happiness is listed as higher. I just uh, – we have a lot of these kind of data are so complicated. So I, just to take the – I loved what you did by asking scientists about previous discoveries and, and sort of ranking them. Nobel Prizes. What are the what are the great Nobel Prizes? But it reminds me a little bit about baseball. Right? You say who are the greatest baseball players of all time? You know, it's this age old argument. People say, well, obviously there's nobody as good as Babe Ruth or Ted Williams, and there's a good argument to be made. There's also an argument made that oh my gosh, Babe Ruth and Ted Williams today would get wouldn't be very good at all. And the present players are much much better. Okay. It's, it's so it's, it's so it's, obvious. So, but there, there's a lot of romance about Albert Einstein and a lot of romance about Rutherford and a lot of romance uh, about Niels Bohr. And maybe that's why they rated the 20s and 30s so much higher. So it's just, it's just hard to know, right? So, 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 so um, it, it is certainly hard to know. Uh, and again, I do want to emphasize that I, I, I do not think that uh, kind of uh, any single argument here is, uh, is sort of dispositive and, and definitive, right? Yep. But I, I do kind of want to push back on sort of that degree of agnosticism in the sense that like there are some things we really do know. We do know that the number of working scientists has increased enormously, right? And so I think it's kind of a very reasonable and valid question. Well, okay, for that increase, and again, it is vast, um, you know, have we gotten a proportional increase in the rate of discovery, right? And, and like, that should not be a hard question to answer. And that, you know, if the number of scientists had increased by, say, 20%, you know, perhaps, you know, the, the kind of error bars and all this stuff uh, yep. are so wide that, you know, we can't tell was a 20% increase or not. But we're not talking about um, sort of a 20% increase in our inputs, you know, depending on the measure you take, you know, it varies. But we're talking about increases of between sort of 10x and 100x. <laughs> uh, and if we're investing 10x to 100x more, it should really not be a difficult question. Are we getting... Uh, 10x to 100x more output than we were previously. So, and so the fact that it's so hard for us to find that kind of vast improvement uh, in, in our output, you know, like uh, the, the mere fact that the answer to the question is not blindingly obvious, I think is itself suggestive. So an analogy, I guess, would be, uh, well, <laughs> it's hard to figure out what the analogy is. I'm thinking when we have a lot more workers in some area, of course, most fields, we have a lot fewer workers and a lot more and more productivity. Which is, Absolutely, which is which yes. is interesting in and of itself. That, um, that's what we should be aspiring to, right? So let's let's shift. Let's take what you've what you've claimed is true, mm-hmm. and now let's think about uh, two things: uh, what might be the explanations? Of course, there are many, and what might be done about it if we wanted to change that? Because it's a great example of how I think the disease. Uh, if you want to cure the disease, you better know what the disease is, rather than just mm-hmm. say we need more we need more science education in school, uh, which yes. is a kind of mindless uh, corollary people draw, which I think is wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. Although we might need more science education in school or better science education, but so yes. we can think about I think uh, different things. One answer, of course, which you talk about, and we'll we'll go into is that this is the nature of reality. Uh, the lowest hanging fruit's been picked. Uh, we might also argue that the lowest hanging scientists have already been chosen. And as we mm-hmm. expand into the uh, population with more and more people in these fields, we'd expect the gains to be smaller. So that that's one possibility. Right. The second possibility would be 
we organize the search for knowledge poorly. Uh, universities and um, uh, innovation labs and Silicon Valley need to be overhauled because we're not getting uh, the return that we're getting. And the third would be we need to change the rules of the game in the larger society. Uh, Obviously, you can lower your rate of total factor productivity by passing some really bad legislation that hampers people. And, and, and of course, legislation and the rules of the game are changing all the time as are cultural norms. And all those Mm -hmm. things get all – all those three things get tangled up together. So – Yes. Talk to me about what you see as those possible explanations. And if you think there's any reason to think one of them is maybe a little more uh, compelling than the other. Yeah. So uh, I think you're absolutely right to kind of um, uh, want to avoid this, that sort of, you know, politician syllogism of, uh, you know, we we, got to do something and, you know, this is something, therefore we must do that with, you know, science education schools or, you know, whatever the case might be, even though, I mean, you know, on that specific intervention, who knows, maybe it does work. Um, uh, And I, I suppose one thing to sort of really emphasize at the outset of this is, you know, Michael and I, we really want more more science and more sort right. of scientific discovery and more knowledge and all the rest. And so kind of, uh, uh, you know, one might in some sense kind of take this you know, this claim or this article or something to be kind of pessimistic about science, uh, whereas in some ways almost the opposite, where um, uh, we, we think it could be so much better. Um, and we think it is so important that if it is possible for it to be better, for us to kind of get there, that we really think we, we, we got to engage with this question. Um, uh, and... I think you're kind of dead right with that framing in terms of sort of separating um, uh, sort of uh, contingent institutional or kind of sociological explanations for for this decline um, uh, from those that are kind of somehow about the kind of meta structure of knowledge. Yeah, the nature Um, of reality versus, I would say, the rules of the game. And I want to mention, by the way, that one of the the more uh, obvious implications of your work, if you take it just barefaced, is that we're spending too much money subsidizing graduate education in science, and we have too many scientists. That would be, a, you know, I don't think that's your, I know that's not your goal, but you could easily draw that conclusion as well. Yeah. Um, uh, I, well, I really think such a conclusion would be premature, um, yes. uh, to be very clear. Um, uh, and that, that that is not the case we're making. Um, but, but yes, uh, I do think there should be um, uh, a more, uh, sort of robust discussion about how it is that we should be allocating our efforts and uh, how all that input uh, should be structured. On sort of this core question of like, okay, is this about the nature of reality or is it about kind of the nature of just, you know, how we're doing things? Um, I really think that's uh, very difficult to know. And, you know, uh, um, you know, people have been sort of uh, making the case, um, uh, you know, people like Sean Carroll um, have made the case in physics that uh, you know, we th- th- there is a sense in which we've kind of gotten there and, and really explained a very large fraction of you know that which is to be explained. And of course, you can always push back on that. And you know, there are quotes, some you know, real, some apocryphal um, of people who sort of uh, thought that we'd kind of reached uh, the end of this frontier in the past. But you know, <laughs> well, even if those uh, assessments were wrong in the past, it doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong today. And obviously, you know, um, uh, uh, anyway. So I think there's kind of some credence we should ascribe to, to that argument. However, I guess Michael's and my view is that um, even if it is the case, um, or, well, I think it is assuredly the case, uh, depending on the field, that some of the story is um, a kind of um, paucity of low-hanging fruit, and some of the story is uh, sort of uh, these kind of more contingent factors. Um, and, you know, we're pretty convinced, I guess, that 
a non-trivial part of the story um, uh, entails these uh, sort of, again, um, uh, sociological, institutional considerations. And so I think you sort of don't actually need to answer the question of, well, is it, you know, 80-20 this way or 80-20 the other way? Uh, and even if it is only 20% institutional factors, like the return to science is so enormous that it's still sort of overwhelmingly worth um, uh, fixing those. And then as we fix them and as we experiment there and so on, perhaps we will learn more about kind of uh, which it truly is. Um, and, you know, I think you, you really, um, it's uh, it's not hard to kind of discover that um, uh uh, or to, to, to kind of come to realize that how we sort of produce knowledge today, how kind of our you know scientific industrial complex works, is not optimal. Um, I have yet to meet a scientist uh, who um, who's even called it you know pretty good. Um, whether that's kind of the you know conservatism of funding mechanisms and apparatus, um, or uh, the and, and the kind of assessment criteria and so on, or the time horizon of them, or the kind of um, uh, rigidity with which uh, fields and uh, sort of career tracks are prescribed and so on, uh, there's, uh, I think there, there, there really is a lot that um, holds scientists back. Uh, and, you know, to, to kind of, um, it, it, it's been sort of widely reported that NIH R01 grants, uh, NIH of course being the largest funder of science in the US, um, uh, the average age of kind of um, uh, first receipt of an NIH R01 grant has been kind of uh, uh, steadily increasing, um, uh, sort of uh, so, so in, indicating that kind of in some sense it's getting even worse uh, to be a sort of a, a new scientist uh, arriving on the scene. Uh, and there's very suggestive evidence that uh, kind of perturbations uh, in um, you know some of our sort of uh, institutional mechanisms can really yield high returns. Um, uh, there's a, a, a great paper um, on, uh, on the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, HHMI, uh, which is a really neat uh, funder of um, uh, science in the U.S. Uh, and uh, and you know, they, they, they kind of uh, uh, fund uh, science somewhat differently to NIH. They give longer grants. Uh, they give grants to people rather than for kind of a specific work and projects and so on. Uh, and so anyway, this paper from uh, Pierre Azoulay um, uh, looked at uh, uh, sort of if you try to take two populations that, you know, by most observable characteristics uh, seem pretty similar. Um, and if you look at those who, you know, received uh, uh, HHMI funding and those who did not, uh, uh, Azoulay concluded that um, or showed uh, that HHMI grant recipients were 98% more likely to produce work uh, that is in the sort of top 1% uh, by citations. And so really not a small effect size. Um, and of course, you know, there you're not actually perturbing that much. You're changing how, you know, the funding works, but you know, these people have still been trained in the same way. They're still at the same kinds of institutions. Um, they're still, you know, working with the same kinds of colleagues and so on. And so the fact that you can get such a large effect size just by kind of changing one variable <laughs> suggests to me that, you know, it, it, it would be very surprising if uh, uh, sort of perturbations and, and, you know, shifts and experiments and so on with other variables, um, uh, you know, it was not possible to kind of uh, uh, to create other um, uh, you know, such improvements. And it's easy to forget, of course, how kind of in some way, you know, accidental um, it is kind of uh, where we've ended up today, kind of how the sort of uh, U.S. post-war structure of science came to be. Um, I mean, you know, as with anything like that, it's it's the product of, you know, all sorts of, you know, semi-random, you know, political, human, whatever uh, factors and considerations. And, you know, obviously it's working pretty well on some level. You know, we've made more progress in the last, uh, uh, you know, 100 years than we've made in... Um, 
any prior century, but I think we have very little reason to believe that it's anywhere close to optimal. And so I guess Michael's and my core strongest view uh, is that we really should be experimenting more here. The returns so, seem likely to be very high. Yeah, that's um, well, we know one thing that the post-war uh, institutional setup is really good at, and that's producing more scientists, um, which <laughs> is not our ultimate goal. But I do right. think you raise you made me think of some really interesting cultural uh, norms and responses that the current complex um, way that different factors interact might be handicapped. Mm -hmm. uh, just some think thoughts out loud, and you can you can respond to it. Um, you mentioned that Nobel Prize winners are getting older. Um, mm -hmm. The whole idea, and you mentioned that you know we the Nobel Prize has to inevitably try to rank uh, the quality yes. of innovations. Well, maybe it's not very good at it. And in particular, it's conservative. It's cautious. Mm -hmm. It's prudent. In the early days, not so much. Didn't know what they were doing. Didn't matter so much. Mm -hmm. Didn't have much of a brand mm -hmm. name. Now, the idea that the Nobel Prize would be awarded to something that was turned out to be like wrong would be very embarrassing. And so as things uh, – there's a sclerosis, it seems to me, about scientific knowledge as it's become more organized and more institutionalized. And I think there's a general lesson there that's really important because, you know, people send, tend to talk, assume, well, the more organized, the better, because then we can make it do stuff. But it could be that because of groupthink and caution and risk, yes. as things get more advanced and as we get richer as society – and his reputation has longer and and bigger impacts. That a lot of the creativity is is been you know wrung out of the system, and I'm very drawn to that for a whole bunch of ideological priors yep. I have. So I have to be careful about my biases here. But but it does seem to but, me. But, 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 well, no, I, I think you're I think you're right. I mean, you read um, the early history of sort of the great academic institutions in the U.S. Uh, or the biographies of many of those who uh, made some of the most important breakthroughs. And there is a kind of freewheeling nature to them um, that um, uh, that does seem far less prevalent today. Uh, and yeah, I was having this conversation recently with, uh, with David Deutsch, um, the, uh, the you know, uh, physicist, um, you know, some, some um, really significant work in, in quantum computing, um, uh, foundational work. Uh, and you know we were kind of reflecting on and, and um, uh, sort of chatting about his career, um, and he was very firmly of the view that uh, he could not have had the career he did, and could not have done the work that he did um, had he been starting out today, uh, because he didn't fit in any neat box. He you know wasn't exactly kind of you know fish or fowl and so on, and it kind of flitted a little bit. Between different fields, and you know, of course, that is also his great strength. He's such a, a, a sort of um, a deep and original thinker. Um, and uh, as things have gotten a little bit kind of more striated, a little bit more structured, uh, and a little bit more, um, and you know, perhaps not a little bit more, perhaps a lot more, but um, uh, at least more um, uh, kind of formalized. Um, I think there is kind of a real question as to the the degree to which we are losing some of the. Um, sort of, uh, you know, very intrinsically necessary uh, creativity and uh, sort of, um, uh, the, you know, the discovery of new knowledge necessarily involves kind of uh, breaking from uh, existing um, uh, existing models. Uh, and, you know, perhaps in some way we're structurally disincentivizing that. 
Yeah, I worry about groupthink. I know that NIH, having had family and friends in the in that research world, there, there's a lot of fads. There are things, there's political correctness, sure. not of the yep. necessarily the kind that people think about in, say, campus life or day-to-day life, but within ideolo- within fields, within science, there's political correctness Absolutely. about what's okay to think about and, and work on. Yep. And um, it, well, yeah, and, and, and it's striking, I think, how um, uh, how we've shifted a little. Well, in particular, as we've kind of formalized um, funding mechanisms, uh, how I think the dynamics of those mechanisms have really changed. Uh, where uh, you know, I was um, recently reading this uh, biography of uh, uh, Gamow and Delbruck. Um, uh, who kind of became um, molecular biologists and uh, and obviously Gamow the physicist um, and uh, uh, it's you know it, it's very striking how sort of they really relied upon sort of specific interventions by particular people to kind of sustain their careers and keep them going. Uh, it wasn't that they kind of um, uh, hopped through the hoops of again standardized uh, funding and grant making apparatus, and it's not really clear to me. And I guess the kind of you know. Um, implicit sort of thesis of the book is that they probably would not have. Um, they, they, again, did not fit these standard molds. Uh, and so I do wonder a lot whether, I mean, there's of course always been groupthink, right? But perhaps the groupthink has become a little bit more potent uh, yeah. uh, you know, over the past couple of decades. So let me, let me suggest a, uh, a hypothesis then. And then maybe when we're done with this, we'll think about some other, we focused on one piece of this puzzle as a possible main problem. But l- let's imagine the following. Uh, Einstein did his innovations uh, while he was a patent clerk uh, at night, or probably during the day. Some too. Let's let's be honest. A little bit of there was work on the job even in in nineteen early nineteen hundreds. I mean, leisure on the job, the opportunity to do things other than your explicit tasks. But he mm-hmm. didn't need a large lab. He didn't need mm-hmm. a um, nuclear a uh, atomic accelerator. Um, Slack, which is SLAC at Stanford, Stanford <laughs> linear, linear Accelerator, whatever the last C stands for, I don't know. But it's obvious. One thing that's obvious is that uh, a lot of scientific innovation today requires capital. And mm-hmm. once it requires capital, it requires funding. And once it requires funding, it requires wealth. We have a lot of it, which is a glorious thing. Uh, the question is, how do you channel that wealth in ways that are going to be the most productive? A lot of it we channel through the political process. Uh, through NSF and NIH. A lot of it's taking place, even though obviously uh, a lot of this work is more applied in, in, in the corporate side. There's still real innovation taking place in, in the corporate sector. But these fundamental science things take most, take a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them take money. And this sclerosis and, and um, I would call it sort of the maturing of an of any industry, it gets a little less eager to take risks. It's, it's not any one person doing that, although it does happen also yeah. at the personal level. I think, uh, you know, it's not surprising that Bill I, Gates has not done a lot of innovation in computing lately. He also became a little more staid and a little more cautious and a little more eager to maintain his current position. Uh, so it's hard to break out of that. And it the challenge is how, you know, what kind of changes would yeah. we think about that would let us get to that more innovative wild west right. frontier yeah i mean uh, it's 
obviously I sort of um, I come to this question with sort of you know some of my own kind of perspective and and biases and you know no doubt you know highly incomplete um, uh, sort of view of the world but sort of one thing that is striking uh, coming from sort of technology is obviously the sort of certainly in this domain uh, the uh, the very deep truth of what you just said where um, there's there's not a chance that the kind of innovation that we've seen in sort of software and uh, IT and and kind of uh, electronics and so on, there's not a chance that that would have occurred over the past couple of decades um, had had we been reliant on sort of a small handful of institutions or companies to produce them, uh, or even if we'd been reliant on one or two major funders. Yeah. Because, of course, within the funders, there's kind of biases yep. and you know, group think and, uh, and all of the rest. And so you actually yeah. have sort of, um, you, you, you have multiple layers of kind of competition, right? You've yep. obviously competition, um, uh, uh, among companies and then competition among funders, um, uh, uh, who are sort of all, you know, coming to, uh, you know, approach the world with sort of, you know, uh, you know, quite varying and, and just, substantially different theses about, you know, what even yields innovation. Some of them are very founder-oriented. Some of them are very market-oriented. Some of them really want to see a, you know, super robust and rigorous execution plan and all the rest. And and there is no right answer here, right? For some kinds of companies or some kinds of, you know, founders, whatever, some approaches are going to work better than others, right? Um, and, uh, and, and so the, you know, the fact, that, well, and of course, that is indeed closer to kind of uh, what science looked like um, sort of before it was, you know, professionalized and before kind of institutions formed with kind of the same potency that they have today. And so, yeah, I guess the, the, the big question that I wonder about is how do we, uh, it's not that I, I have, or I think really anyone can have a strong view of kind of what the right funding mechanisms are, what the right institutional mechanisms are and all the rest. It's more that it seems very surprising to me that the kind of structural monoculture is as strong as it is, and I think that's really the thing that we should be trying to break out of. And you know, so for example, uh, an intervention that I think would be neat to try is having more scientists allocate more dollars directly themselves, right? Uh, in that, let's say we we carve out you know a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars a year. And we somehow, but through whatever mechanism, choose you know really good scientists uh, and have them each allocate. Maybe it's just a million dollars every year, right? Um, uh, and uh, but but you know they can kind of unilaterally direct that to whoever they think is doing kind of important important work, where you know the marginal returns will be will be very high. Uh, and you know you you kind of again talk to top scientists. You know they almost all know of people who you know they think are doing sort of really important work, not likely to get funded through current mechanisms, but they would really. Um, uh, they think it's important to well, see uh, make progress. If my claim, but, 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 I guess my if my claim please. is correct about this cultural uh, risk aversion, then having that process be anonymous rather than named sure. would be an interesting model. Normally, we'd say, "Well, we, we want we want to know who who said this. We should spend a million dollars on X because yes. they'll, they'll be more responsible." But maybe they'd be yep, yep. more. We know they'd so, be more totally, cautious. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe it should only be it should only be revealed if it works or something, yeah. right? And yeah. then they should be showered with credit uh, there, for taking such a big risk. Um, uh, but, but I guess my point in raising this is not to claim again that sort of I think this is the sort of quote unquote right intervention or uh, that this is kind of the model that we should try to shift or anything like that. It's more that I think we should have a portfolio of such approaches. Um, uh, 
uh, uh, that, that we're kind of experimenting with and, and you know, uh, ob- observing the results of. I had dinner um, earlier this week with uh, with Howard Chang, who's a fabulous um, and indeed HHMI-funded professor at Stanford. And, you know, he was making the point when we were discussing this question that uh, uh, we really should have some people who are becoming PIs, you know, um, uh, principal investigators, uh, leading their own labs at much earlier ages. Some people are just ready for that in their early 20s. But again, kind of our, our current sort of institutional structural mechanisms don't support that. Um, and, you know, h- how good an idea is that, you know, how great would the returns be? You know, I, of course, don't know, but I think that sounds like a great idea to try, right? Uh, and so I think we should be assembling our portfolio of bets here uh, and really experimenting more. I want to raise a different angle on this that we haven't talked about yet. Um, I want to think about uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who's been a guest on the program many times, and he is famous, among other things, for the idea of a black swan, a rare catastrophic event that comes out of the far left-hand tail of a distribution that is not normally distributed and that much of our intuition about life comes from the normal distribution. And I think some of what we're talking about here implicitly is making that error. We're talking about white swans. It's not the right word, but yes, uh, yes. black swans are rare. White swans are everywhere. But by white swan, I mean an, a catastrophic, a, a wildly pleasant Unexpected Positive event, catastrophic event. Yes, and and uh, and we and yeah. by our current the way we current you and I are both talking about this, and I think the way most people think about it is that well, if we had a lot more scientists, we'd have a more people in the right hand tail in a normal distribution, but maybe it's actually uh, that's the wrong way to think about. It. I want to read a quote from Scott Alexander, who will we'll link to this post he had. He was resp- he attended a conference that you and Michael Nelson uh, created. And he has some very thoughtful reflections on the issues we're talking about right now. But he said the following. He said, Shakespeare in England had 1% of the population of the modern Anglosphere and presumably even fewer than 1% of the artists. Yet it gave us Shakespeare. Are there 100 Shakespeare equivalents around today? Meaning my my interpolation here, meaning, well, we have so many more people. We should have a lot more Shakespeare's. And Scott Alexander continues, this is a harder problem than it seems. Shakespeare's become so venerable with historical hindsight that maybe nobody would acknowledge a Shakespeare-level master today, even if they existed. But still, a hundred Shakespeare's? If we look at some measure of great works of art per era, we find past eras giving us far more than we would predict from their population relative to our own. This is very hard to judge, and I would hate to be the guy who has to decide whether Harry Potter is better or worse than the Aeneid, Virgil's classic work, but still a hundred Shakespeare's. And so one way to think, and to quote, one way to think about this challenge that you're articulating is that we need to be thinking about Shakespeare's, the, the Einstein's, the one in a million, and realize that one when you, it's one in a million, if you have 10 million, you don't get necessarily a 10 of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do we culturally create the opportunity for that very outside-the-box mind to That's flourish. Right. Yeah, so um, I guess two points to that. So first, kind of just to what you were saying pr- previously, um, uh, I think you're kind of exactly right that in these kind of um, – uh, in these domains with this kind of, uh, you know, um, these kind of convex returns um, where uh, – or, or sort of parallel returns, whatever you want to call it – uh, I think you're kind of exactly right that what you want to do is you want to increase the number of samples and you, you want to kind of push towards more variance, right? Yeah. And again, I think kind of another way of you know, articulating you know, that which we're 
talking about is that kind of there are all these mechanisms that actually seem um, not, not only not designed to increase the variance, but in many ways um, that they kind of uh, structurally attenuate it. Uh, and that just is really bad uh, when we get these um, you know, positive catastrophes uh, to, to abuse the, uh, the black swan term. Um, on the, uh, on the uh, 100 uh, uh, Shakespeare's point, um, I mean, I, I think that's actually a, a quite interesting example because, you know, it, it's certainly not obvious that we do in fact have a hundred Shakespeare's today, or that even in sort of 500 years, people will think that we had sort of a hundred people who will kind of, uh, s- sit at the same level. And so perhaps on some level, uh, in, um, uh, in, you know, within drama or theater, you know, however we want to kind of define Shakespeare's field, perhaps we're seeing diminishing returns, right? Um, but when we take a kind of broader view of, you know, Shakespeare was also, uh, say, uh, an entertainer, um, uh, or, a, you know, in some way, part of the entertainment uh, sort of uh, production edifice. Um, it's not It's not clear to me that we don't have 100 Shakespeare's, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like, let, let's think about YouTube stars yeah. uh, or funny Twitter Netflix. accounts or about, digital about artists, Netflix. Netflix, video game designers, right? And, of course, you know, most of these things don't nearly have the kind of, you know, um, luster and status that sort of Shakespeare now holds. But, you know, that takes time. Status always lags. Um, uh, and so I think if we take a broader conception of um, sort of the set of eligible fields, uh, it, you know, it, again, it's, it's really not clear to me that we, that we have seen um, any such decline. You know, there were probably 100 Shakespeare's available to be productive in Shakespeare's time, but most of them died young or spent their time hungry and didn't burn brightly enough with ambition <laughs> and passion for their work to spend their time writing plays all day. And today we have the luxury that thousands and thousands of people can be in the entertainment industry. And I've said before this program, as soon as I say we're in the golden age of television, the golden age of movies, I think we're in the golden age of storytelling. YouTube is one example that you mentioned, but and I mentioned Netflix, but the the, the quality of, of the miniseries and, and they're miniseries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, something like uh, a show like The Americans, which I'm in the middle of, no spoilers, please, but is really extraordinarily good and is sustained over six seasons, I hope. I'm in season two or three, mm-hmm. uh, season three, but six seasons of 13 episodes each. That, that's, that's, that's just, that's, ex- that's 72. Um, I did the math wrong. 80, 84. It, it, it's what, six times 13, 39, 78. It's 78, uh, movies that this, that this person, they're short, they're only 40 minutes long, but it, it, the creativity and the quality of the filmmaking uh, there or in The Crown or in The Wire, or in, there's so many. So there, there's a lot of Shakespeare's out there in a certain dimension that, yes, it's true. They don't have quite the – they don't have the luster because that, that's almost going to be by definition. Yeah. But the quality of, of riveting entertainment in our time is, is – there's at least 100. It, totally agree, and um, uh, you know, on, on your sort of point that uh, uh, sort of at Shakespeare's or in Shakespeare's time, there were probably a hundred more who who sort of did not get uh, access to the same kinds of opportunities. Uh, that's something we think a lot about um, at Stripe. Um, uh, it's kind of part, part of our core thesis uh, in that um, uh, you know we, we, we often talk about this notion that opportunity, excuse me, talent um, is uh, you know approximately evenly distributed, uh, but sort of opportunity, of course, is, uh, is so much more uneven. Um, and, uh, and I think the returns to, um, 
to to fixing that, you know, we really should presume will be very high. And it's it's you know it's why we do things like Atlas. It's why we care so much about global expansion. And it's even why Stripe has invested in um, in some sort of semi-adjacent companies, uh, some of which you might be familiar with, like Pioneer or Lambda School, uh, efforts like this. Uh, and I think that um, it, it's kind of easy to sort of structurally underestimate, I think, the returns to expansion of opportunity because you, ca- you can't really measure it ex ante. You have to sort of uh, take it on some amount of faith. Um, but uh, sort of our intuition is, is really that um, those returns are likely to be very high. So I want to move to a slightly different focus. We've talked about some of the cultural shortcomings, perhaps, and the way the funding is organized. Uh, you're an interesting case. You are, uh, if listeners haven't noticed, uh, you have a lilt in your voice because you grew <laughs> up in Ireland. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you came to the United States uh, for college at a young age. And that's right. if you had been born in we can name a lot of places where if you had been born, you wouldn't be here having this conversation mm-hmm. and Stripe wouldn't For exist sure. with, along with your brother. And fortunately, you were able to come to the United States. You were smart enough and risk-taking enough, I think, to drop out of college. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Dropped out of college, found a place, the West Coast of California, of the United States, California, where there were really wealthy people willing to take a chance on you. Uh, and if that isn't true in your particular story, it doesn't matter because it's true in lots of stories. And exactly that right. strange confluence of opportunity, which is the opportunity to move, we let you in. You had a chance to use your gifts in a way that uh, required an enormous uh, – some investment. It may be a big investment. And it came through. Most of them don't. We know that. Yep. <laughs> uh, that system is really powerful. And, of yes. course, some of that's at risk all the time. It's at risk all the time, every piece of it. There's worries about we have too many immigrants. There's worries that mm-hmm. we talked about that Silicon Valley's become uh, a little bit uh, sclerotic and, and less innovative mm-hmm. because of certain cultural and it may or because we don't know because there's all the good stuff's been discovered. But I know you and I don't believe that. I don't think that's the problem that's holding us yes. back. And so uh, what do you think of the – well, talk from your own story. I, I, what's yeah. your, you know, yeah. what allowed you to flourish fully um, or somewhat I think, fully? Um, I don't mean to suggest that you fulfilled your potential because obviously you're you're young. You're very young. You're 26, I think. So. Um, oh no, no, no. I've, I've 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 now aged a bit. I'm 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 now in a, I'm a, a, a far older 30. Um, oh, oh my god. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, old, now all by Silicon Valley standards. But um. Yeah, I, I, I think you're you're, you're, you're exactly. You're, but you're you're really right in bringing this up. Uh, in that, I think that a lot of um, a lot of, I think, my perspective does come from you know, perhaps as with all of us, the kind of particulars of of you know the background that I had, um, and and I think kind of your character characterization of it is is you know exactly right, um, and and yeah, I. I conclude very strongly from kind of my upbringing and the fact that um, I had the opportunity to, to come to Silicon Valley, um, uh, that there, there must be um, many more people like me, but who, for whatever reason, um, you know, the, the sort of, um, in, in sort of the pachinko machine of outcomes, uh, just, it didn't all kind of um, uh, fall out the right way. Uh, and for me, there was like, 
I think if you kind of ran the experiment sort of multiple times, uh, that plausibly in most outcomes, I didn't make it here, right? Um, uh, and, and it's because of, you know, so much sort of random happenstance and that I happened to decide, I was really interested in this programming language called Lisp. Because of that, I decided to go to a conference at Stanford when I was 16. I discovered, uh, it was my first time in the U.S., I kind of discovered college in the U.S. And had I not gone to that conference, I wouldn't have applied to school in the U.S. And I'm pretty sure if I hadn't applied to school in the U.S., I wouldn't have dropped out to go start a company because when I got to the U.S., I sort of discovered, um, uh, I got to know the, the folks um, working on Reddit. Um, and I was like, oh, cool, you know, starting a company seems pretty neat. Uh, and so there was, there was so much kind of happenstance um, in, uh, in, in my upbringing that kind of led to, to where I am today uh, that, you know, uh, it, it really feels kind of necessarily the case, again, that there must be people who were you know, every bit as capable as me or much more capable than me, who, but, but who sort of, again, things did not quite um, uh, come together um, uh, as they did uh, in my case. Um, the other thing that is very striking for my story that, again, kind of gets back to um, some of these uh, sort of science questions is not only is it sort of you know, potentially the case that some kind of committee might not have uh, been willing to take a bet on Stripe or to fund Stripe. It was the case that most such committees that we approached, you know, most DC firms, um, uh, you know, were, were um, extremely unenthusiastic uh, about the prospects of two near teenagers uh, going and sort of entering the financial industry and, you know, told us in no uncertain terms um, that they thought the idea was pretty foundationally um, ill-conceived. Uh, and it was only because um, of a couple of specific individuals, uh, among them Paul Graham and Peter Thiel, who were willing to um, themselves um, you know, place that bet. If that had not happened, there would be no stripe. Uh, and I'm really pretty convinced that uh, sort of <laughs> it was sufficiently um, um, our success was sufficiently implausible that uh, there is almost no committee that would ever have come to kind of unanimity on the worthiness uh, of, of, a, of a bet on Stripe. Just, you know, if you take that sort of for any one person, maybe there's a one in 10 chance they would believe in us. You know, you, you don't need to like a, a, a one in 10 to any power, you know, starts to pretty rapidly become a, a very small number. Right. Uh, and so that's really very striking. And then, of course, you know, as we work on Stripe itself, I mean, we're, we're in the business of uh, working with, uh, and sort of aiding in the success of again these kind of <laughs> these positive catastrophes, these like amazing companies that you know start out as two people and become these kind of enormous uh, uh, um, you know forces in the world. Like it, it's so vividly clear to us how fragile and delicate and implausible they are at the larval stage, uh, uh, and 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 we see so tangibly the kind of potency of mechanisms to shepherd them, to provide them with kind of role models, with inspiration, with cultural capital, with education and so on, uh, that, uh, you know, again, I, I really feel like this kind of must be the case in other domains besides. So I want to think about a particular area for a minute, and, and I think it'll pull every, a lot of the factors we've been talking about together. I just, you know, I listen to you talk and it's, it's a, it's a, I have a lot of romance about innovation and entrepreneurship. I find it actually quite moving, uh, not just the reality, but your awareness of the tenuousness of success and, and achievement. And it's really a, it's an extraordinary thing. But as you're talking, I kept thinking how everyone's response to these original conversation, piece of our conversation about lagging productivity is, well, we need to find the right way 
to structure funding science, or we need to find the right mm-hmm. way to reform scientific education, science education at the K through 12 or at the college level. And I, one of the things I wish, I think I've learned, and I, I, I think it's true, I'd like to get your response, is that that, that whole idea is just a, a dead end. The whole idea that that's finding that's the right. right way, and that most of the time, the right way is something we haven't even thought about at all. So the idea of doing what we do better is is almost certainly the wrong way to think about it. You know, it comes up a lot in education. Yeah, we just need what's the right curriculum? And so much yep. of the great education takes place on the ground at the one-on-one level, the teacher classroom level. We don't fully understand that interaction well uh, at all, and we need to think about how to make that better. And we know how. I'm pretty sure I know how not to do it, which is I don't want a national curriculum. I don't want a national uh, education requirement that people have, say, a master's degree in education. All the standard things are – the only thing I know is that most of the standard things are wrong, so we need new things. So I, when I think about, say, one particular area, which is health, where there's so much potential, forget the, all of our previous conversation about whether we're going to solve a theory of everything in physics that will be like Einstein's. If we just think about the ways we might innovate in health, so much of it is so focused on the current structure. And it would seem to me that there's such potential for someone like you and the people you know well who have fortunately have very large sums of money or have been extremely successful. And do you think that that success could be risked and and done in a ways that not or that are not traditional right now that are you mentioned Paul Graham. Mm-hmm. I, you were in the Y Combinator, I, is that correct? Um, uh, yeah, YC invested in Stripe, yes. So, Paul Graham, we've had him on talking about the Y, y Combinator. Y Combinator is a pretty cool innovation. Why do you think quite like it? It's an amazing innovation. So, we need, it seems innovation. to me, we need people with wherewithal, like you and others, to get together and say, we've got to be brave enough to try to, to fail. And it's ironic yes. because everybody knows in Silicon Valley that failure is acceptable and it's even a badge of honor. And yet I worry that as people get more and more successful, they worry about their reputation. They worry about losing what yes. they already have, which is the human impulse. But it would be great if you guys took a few more chances. Um, I, I agree with you very strongly. Um, uh, I think that um, you know I'm, I'm very optimistic uh, about uh, sort of – individual human agency and I'm very optimistic about sort of the width of the right tail um, and I'm very optimistic about the sort of transmissibility of new knowledge um, and I'm sort of um, pessimistic about the ability of uh, 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 groups of humans to engage in effective ex-ante top-down design um, you know uh, um, Again, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with the book uh, Seeing Like a State, the sort of uh, great screed against sort of uh, monoculture uh, in some sense. Uh, and so I think, you know, oriented that way, we, we quite clearly need um, exactly what you're describing, which is mechanisms to break out of the monoculture. It just does not serve us well. And this is maybe... I don't know if it's the right thing to say, but it's not my money. Easy for me to say to you, <laughs> Patrick, you've done so well. I'll take a chance. So that's none of my business. Uh, and I do think there's an enormous challenge for an opportunity for, for some of the 
more successful people in in Silicon Valley to do something outside the uh, the narrowest of spaces that are profit oriented. I think, and I I've talked to a number of folks in that situation, and they all have an urge to change the world beyond the commercial. Uh, they have an urge to change the world beyond the rate of return. They don't just care about creating the next unicorn. They do care about yes. making a difference. But I guess I'd yes. start by saying, uh, although that's not my money, the part that is my money that's being taxed to fund NIH and NSF and, and public yep. education at the state level, state university level, we, mm-hmm. we just might re- at least think rethink that uh, and, and then in, let other flowers blossom outside that way that we've been doing it for so long. Yeah, one thing that's striking about HHMI is they're very thoughtful about how they reallocate their dollars, right? Uh, As in, they think about, well, what are our lowest productivity dollars and what can we do with them that might move the needle more? Because, you know, they have a sort of not not exactly fixed, but, you know, fixed-ish endowment. And so their budget doesn't change a whole lot year to year. Um, And so because they're trying to um, maximize the the uh, impact of their work and the extent to which they move the needle on you know, biomedical sciences, um, they, um, they again, they, they really think hard about this question of, you know, how should we change what we're doing? And I think that a lot of the sort of individual incentives and kind of um, institutional structure of some of our centralized funding mechanisms kind of militate against uh, this sort of reconsideration, this kind of reapportioning and reallocation. Um, and you know, to kind of get back to an earlier point uh, that you made, uh, which is kind of one could construe the argument we made as a case for reducing funding in science, uh, I really wouldn't consider that um, for a second. Uh, I think the, the questions we should be asking ourselves are much more about reapportioning and reallocation. And who makes those decisions and you know, right. I, you haven't heard this episode either. It's also been recorded recently with Mariana Mazzucato. She wants the government to be actively innovating, not just funding, but actually doing the innovation within government. And um, obviously, I don't, not, I'm not in agreement with her, but that's another approach. Um, and you know, but I think, yep. obviously, I agree with you that the secret is to. We don't necessarily need to spend more money. We do need to spend it differently, probably than we're spending it now. Uh, anything you want to add, Patrick? Uh, anything we didn't talk about that um, you wish we had? No, I think um, uh, I'm delighted we had the chance to uh, to have this uh, have this conversation again. So sort of as as we discussed at the outset, uh, I really think that this is. Um, um, I mean, it sounds kind of hyperbolic and overstated to say it, uh, but I think this is kind of one of the few things that is truly sort of a question uh, or set of questions of kind of civilizational importance. Uh, and so uh, I guess my goal in talking about them and thinking about them and you know making kind of the very small contribution that we did um, is hopefully to just elevate their prominence somewhat. Um, like if somebody else... Uh, um, uh, sort of produced an analysis that showed that, you know, we are completely wrong uh, and actually the way to kind of improve the meta structure and institutional um, uh, aspects of science is something totally different, I'd be delighted. That's great. Uh, whatever makes the whole thing work better um, uh, is, you know, um, is what I'm in favor of. Uh, and, uh, and again, uh, I think it's just something we should, uh, focus more on, take more seriously, 
uh, and uh, and again, hopefully break out of the kind of status quo monoculture. My guest today has been Patrick Collison. Patrick, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks for having me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.